that's some really solid life advice, actually, that you just given us. Have you considered writing a self-help book? Because I feel like you're well on your way. <laughs> <laughs> I've, just, I've, just, I've just needed a lot of therapy in life, and I think that's, you know, this, is, this, is, this is one part of it. <laughs> Welcome to Electric Enthusiasm, the podcast where we celebrate unironic enthusiasm. I consider running a genuine form of torture, and I'm deeply <laughs> cynical of our guest today. Katie Cobalt. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I'm Alexander Kilf, and I ain't running nowhere either. So Mark is gonna have his work cut <laughs> out for him. This is gonna be this is gonna be good. <laughs> so Alex, how does this work? <laughs> well, in some episodes, one of us presents a topic that they love, but the other host knows nothing about, and then tries their hardest to spread that enthusiasm to the other host and to you, the listener. But in this episode, we have a guest on who is super excited about something that we are both deeply skeptical about and we'll see <laughs> and we'll see how he does. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have the moment of meta where we get enthusiastic about enthusiasm and talk a little bit about why it matters and how to live a more enthusiastic life. Can I just say you're getting better and better at those? <laughs> it's like we're saying the same thing every week we it's do. helpful it like it makes it easier that we don't change it yes <laughs> and we do think the world needs more enthusiasm so you can share yours on our website electricenthusiasm.com or on our instagram at electric enthusiasm and tell us what you're really excited about these days you can even play an old send us an email at hello at electricenthusiasm.com we'd love to hear from you our guest in this episode is Mark Dowds, who was born and bred in Belfast. He got kicked out of school at the age of 16, but then went on to a career as a tech entrepreneur in Toronto and Silicon Valley. He recently moved back to Northern Ireland, and last month he got an honorary doctorate of science and economics at Queen's University in Belfast, which, by the way, was handed over to him by none other than Hillary Clinton. But honestly, we don't care about any of that. Mark is here. I mean, I have, I'm like, what is your life, Nate? I have some questions, but I'll save that for later. <laughs> yeah, because the real reason Mark is here is that he has run several dozen ultra marathons. So facts first, what is an ultra marathon? Katie, an ultra marathon is typically defined as anything longer than a marathon distance and is typically in extreme conditions. Extreme conditions could be heat, typically on trails and on the mountains. So climbing, river crossings, lots of elevation, basically anything that sounds silly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a question that everyone is thinking. Why would you do this to yourself? <laughs> Yeah, that's still a question I'm trying to work out, Katie. Um, <laughs> most people, uh, friends and folks who hear, so the, the initial response is that I must have a lot of demons to work out. Um, <laughs> to, to, uh, but it's, I genuinely want to know what my boundaries are, what the limits are. Uh, so typically in life, I, I'll take on a challenge that most wouldn't consider because I get, uh, I get a bit of an adrenaline rush from that. Okay. I mean, I still think you're crazy, but like an understandable <laughs> crazy? Just... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I am a wee bit nuts. It's, uh... 
You met a you met a royal person once who who had a good comment on your running. Could you share that story, please? The, the Duke of Edinburgh that I, I got to meet, my friend introduced me and he said, this is Mark from Northern Ireland, you know, who moved to Toronto and Vancouver and San Francisco, the ultramarathon runner. And he said, he said, Mark, very nice to meet you. He said, let me ask you one question. What are you running from? <laughs> <laughs> I considered saying the monarchy, but I thought that would do. maybe get me into trouble and get me thrown out of Buckingham Palace. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. How did you get started on this? What's your first ultramarathon? I was living in Toronto, had Toronto winters. I got chubby, moved to California and said, okay, that's it. I was 38 years old at the time and said, okay, I'm doing a Fit and 40 campaign. I blasted out to my friends on Facebook, which basically said, Mark's getting fit. And uh, this Fit and 40 thing, led me to try new things. Behind our house, there was a trailhead, it was called the Les Trampas Wilderness. And there was a climb called Camille. I don't know what the elevation gain on that was, but it was absolutely brutal. So I remember just going out one afternoon and hiking up this and then walking around to try and make my way home. And I got completely lost. And I, and I, and I had a conference call to get home for. Um, and so I ended up running for about an hour and a half, which I'd never done in my life before. And I got home and realized, goodness, if I can do that once, I can probably do that again. So what I did is I started to simulate getting lost. I would go on a new trail. I would wander into the middle of this wilderness and then run home. Um, so it sounds completely ludicrous, but it, the, the experience sort of got addictive. And then I was in the airport uh, one day and I picked up this book written by Christopher McDougall uh, called Born to Run. And it talked about all these absolute nutcases that would run like 100 <laughs> miles in their bare feet and all this crazy stuff. But I had pictures off the minute. It didn't look like all these really skinny marathon runners that I'd seen on TV. It told stories about them having beers the night before and all this stuff and going like, jeepers, I, maybe that's it. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm an ultramarathon runner. You read this book and you're like, these are my people. These nut jobs yeah. are my people. <laughs> totally. That's it. So, so basically then I just signed up for one and I told nobody about it until I did it. Wow. And how long was the, the first one? The first one... Uh, was the the Golden Gate San Francisco, which was a 50-kilometer run on the trails that started at Rodeo Beach. If you're ever there and if folks are ever wanting to do one, it is an absolutely fantastic one to start because you end up having this view over San Francisco and it's absolutely beautiful. It was a funny one, though. I was totally paranoid about what this was going to be like because I'd never ran that distance before. So I got to the last aid station and I, I went up to the folks. So I'd got it in my head that I was dead last. I said, thank you so much for waiting for me. And they're going, no, they said, no, no, that's why we're here. And I said, I'm, 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 I'm last, aren't I? And they said, no, no, you're actually just behind the lead pack. What? I was going, like, I was going what? Are you kidding me? I was completely emotionally drained at that point, but that sort of kick just hit in and went, mm. oh my goodness. Then I started to run like there's no tomorrow to try and catch up <laughs> with these folks. Something in me thought, hey, I could win one of these. 
I'm curious, you mentioned that you didn't tell anybody until after you did your first ultramarathon. Why did you not feel like you should tell people? I didn't know whether I would clap out and just fail or what it would be like. Obviously, my wife knew. She knew there was something up because all this kit started arriving at my door. I kept on bringing back. There's a a new little backpack. There's, you know, there's new running shoes. And all of a sudden, she was going... What are you? What are you working on? You know, and I said, "Well, actually, I signed up to this thing." You know, I didn't know whether it was going to be a moment of shame of where I I start something and get halfway through and I'm heli backed out, or you know. So I just I think it was to, to protect myself from what might happen. Mm. I will say, if you did got heli'd out, that would have been one excellent story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wow, you've done a couple of dozen of these, uh, several dozen. What's been your favorite one? I think it was in June 2010. It was in Santa Cruz, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And whatever it was about that day, well, the weather was nice, you know, which affects sort of mood and so on. So beautiful day, not too hot, dry trails. The trails were well-groomed, lots of climbing, but just spectacular beauty. Well, there was just my nutrition, sleep, mood. I, I, I mean, it was, it was nothing but pleasure. And uh, I I remember literally sprinting at one point on a slight, you know, a slight downgrade, just with a massive smile on my face. And, <laughs> and, I, and I got and I got to the end. I looked at their watches and they went, the, the detectives said, oh, goodness, you're a lot further ahead than everyone else. So I finished on five hours and seven minutes. Doing that for me in 50 kilometers with seven feet, thousand feet of climbing it was quite something wow. winning I was ecstatic but it was just even if I hadn't won that race I just uh it was it was, it was just pleasure I mean picturing you running down a hill with a massive smile on your face is not helping the nut job uh theory I have going. <laughs> but it does sound really wonderful <laughs> this particular run felt like really joy so much pleasure but how do you feel right after you finish running? Does like a wave of tiredness hit you or are you still riding that high? I should actually clarify as well, just for the benefit of those who are listening and those who are considering doing this. Every race is not like that. I'm calling that <laughs> one out because it is, it's an anomaly. Because uh, during the run, I normally have every emotion. Uh, <laughs> uh, now I am going to start sounding like a nutcase. One of the races that I ran had 12 river crossings and some of them were up to my chest. I remember trying to get out and falling back in all the time. I was totally soaked, running with wet feet and trainers, you know, feet bleeding and total agony and pain. Um, It was a 50 uh, kilometer run and I took second, but I was so steep that the skin slipped off the bottom of my feet. So I ran basically on uh, on raw feet. No. <laughs> I've, had, I've, had, I've had moments of depression in the middle of it. I've, I've felt utterly resigned. There's moments where this happened in almost every race where I would beat myself up and I'd just go, what, what are you, why are you doing this? Like, you, like, what are you trying to prove? Like, you're trying to be the big lad, you know, are you trying to show off? All these thoughts would come through. And then there's moments where it's the only way to sort of explain it would be like trance. On big, long runs, I would definitely lose an hour or two. 
where I couldn't remember what happened. I would, I would just get into the, I think it's just... Like a flow state? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's, an, it's amazing. And as I mentioned, there are ecstatic moments where it's just nothing but pure high, which I think the endorphins just kick in and, mm. you know, there's just nothing better. At the end of a race, I've had, again, mixed emotions. I remember running the Sonoma 50 mile. It was my first 50 miler. I'd done a whole series of 50 kilometers before it. And I added in then a 50 mile run and thought, well, it can't be much different. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, just again, just for the listener, there is a heck of a difference between 50 kilometers and 50 miles. Well, that's, um, let me uh, wait. Let me let me do the conversion here. <laughs> yeah, 1.6 times. Yeah. Yep, it's quite it's quite different. And I remember getting to the end of that. I literally finished. They handed me a beer. I sat down on my own and started to cry. I called one of my friends. I think he was worried. He said, "You're not actually going to drive home, are you?" Because I was just like emotionally <laughs> broken. Um, uh, and then there've been other times. They said, "I, I remember." Uh, on the Diablo one when I was running to take second place I was chasing this guy to try and get podium and I finished that one and I was just again on a high I think the adrenaline had, had, had kicked in so I've had moments of just despair and I've had moments of enlightenment before and after <laughs> <laughs> wow that sounds that's, it just everything about this sounds extreme like the distance yeah. you're running, the terrain you're running on, and also like the emotional roller coaster sounds ridiculously extreme. Like all, the highest highs to the lowest lows. Oh yeah, I, I did a hundred mile run around uh, Lake Tahoe, and um, and it had oh something stupid. Like I think it was like twenty three thousand feet of climbing. It was like doing Everest or something. I think it was about eighty miles in the aid station. They'd set it up like an Irish pub, and they and they. As I swear they were serving Guinness. And I, it's like I, bread, it's great. I I, I love Guinness. I, I I have my own Guinness tap at home. So yeah, they, so they are they are crazy, but there's a lot of fun stuff they do within them. I also do ultra mountain biking, and they have one uh, in Boggs Mountain in California. It's a eight-hour race, so you compete around the track for eight hours on the dirt. Lots of fun, but they have a whiskey and bacon challenge where you basically take a shot of whiskey and a and a slice of bacon every loop. So, <laughs> they, they, so, there, so there's a few people definitely impaired by the end of that race. Wow, Mark, are normal marathons just like kids' games to you? Like, are they no longer even on your your site? Well, the thing is, I've never. I've never done a marathon. It's like ultra or nothing for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, 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 there's nothing about a marathon interests me. Uh, for couple, um, so yeah, my first long distance run was the one I mentioned. I've never done a marathon before that. And I, I, I never will. They're on the pavement, which really mm. bores me. Yeah. I think the part for me is just nature uh, that gets me out and just the difficulty and the change. Also, a lot of my friends that, run marathons get hurt uh, a lot and I think it's just the repetition of the pavement whereas if you're on the trail your feet move around a lot so you, you so you work your body uh, more ultra or bust cool <laughs> <laughs> 
is there a running event out there that you kind of want to do, but it also kind of scares you that is almost too much? Yeah, it's called the Barclays Marathons, and it's it's just bonkers. I definitely have a screw loose, but you need to have screws <laughs> loose to, to do that one. It's, a, it's an ultramarathon race in Tennessee. The full course is roughly 160 kilometers. Um, it's a loop, and you do it as many loops as you can. The race is limited to about a 60-hour period. It takes place in March, early April, which is typically miserable, freezing, wet conditions. Hardly anybody finishes it. This is yeah. the thing. People just do it. To, I mean, there's a handful of people I think have ever finished it. One of the people that completely inspires me is Courtney DeWalter. She is currently like leading the world. Basically, it used to be 100 miles was the first time. Now it's going 200 miles and and she is killing it. She's beating, you know, anyone with two legs. Doesn't matter if you're male, female, non-binary, she's going to kill you. Uh, what I do share with her was just basically she said, just never lose the joy. And that's mm -hmm. the thing is that, you know, if you, if, I mean, as much as I talk about pain and the, I mean, there's a part of that is just deepening and resilience and it actually translates into into my life and work. Do you train for these things and how do you find enthusiasm to like continue your training? Um, when, when, once I got myself into good running shape, what I would do, I typically take a Monday off running, but then from Tuesday to Friday, I would run anywhere from sort of 10 miles to a half marathon distance every day over the hills on my way to work. And, and then I'd run uh, a marathon length every Saturday. And then every third or fourth Sunday, I'd compete in an ultra distance. The Saturday ones were fun. When you're on your own self, it's really, it's uh, it's quite demoralizing uh, sometimes. Or try, There's days you just want to, why do I want to bother? So Claire, my wife, I'd get her to drop me 20 odd miles away from the house. At, you know. And then I basically just have to wake the way home. So, and I'd get, again, I would get lost all the time and I have to sort of navigate myself around. But the, the feeling of that was, okay, I'm almost home. Uh, the enthusiasm for me typically comes from signing up for something and taking on the challenge. So I, I've, you know, I've recently shifted over to ultra mountain biking, which is another silly sport. You know, it's basically... <laughs> 24 hours on the saddle you do it in a about a 12 mile loop which has about 1200 feet of climbing you do about 20 loops so you do like you know over 200 miles solid uh, right through the night the enthusiasm for that is just again the, to overcome a challenge that most people wouldn't consider as i said earlier i want to know my limits and i haven't found them yet you know so the next race is in Portugal in May, which is uh, it's 350 kilometers on the trail. So it'll be, uh, so it's just how far can we go? Wow. And Mark, you're not fooling me. I know you switched to mountain biking because there's more gear to buy. I've seen your Instagram <laughs> pictures. You have yeah, some yeah. sweet ass bikes. I do. I do. I've got a, a garage, like a showroom, and I have a collection of the most beautiful mountain bikes you've ever seen. Um, so yes, it is an excuse to have a few toys. You're not fooling me. <laughs> I will say for the podcast listeners at home, 
every time Mark very casually mentions these extreme distances and elevations he's doing, me and Alex can't stop but have very incredulous faces on. You cannot see them, but I promise you they're there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So if anyone uh, listening to this podcast is seeing in you that they are also a nutcase just like you are, and they wanted to try this for themselves, how does someone get into this thing? Don't overthink it, don't overplan, and focus on actually the enjoyment side of it. See it as a challenge. Think about competing with yourself and not others, so not to compare. It's one of those big ones because typically when we compare ourselves to others, we look really high up the food chain, and then we end up a little bit demoralized rather than happy. The practical parts would be carve out two hours whether that's in the morning or the evening, whatever your rhythm is. But it's, it's pretty important just to mark out the time. Choose a trail rather than a road if you can and walk it until you get bored. So I mean like walk it every day until you get bored and then start shuffling along a little bit. Once you get to start just remain hiking the hills and when you get to the flats, then start jogging those. Um, and just slowly build it up. And it, uh, most people go out and then they, they run too fast, too quick for a short period of time and try to build that up. And it doesn't work that way. One of the best books to read on it would be a book called Slow Burn by Stu Middleman. It really talks about that practice. Stu Middleman's a whole other degree of silly because he's the guy who runs about thousand miles on a, on a, on a track. <laughs> They do a thousand miles on a track, like a running track. Ah, I mean, no they, yeah, way. I, could, I, could, I couldn't do that. Yeah, he's silly. But his methodology and training re- re- regimes are actually really good and helpful. The other thing to do is uh, buy a couple of pairs of the same running shoes that keep you uh, running on your forefoot. One of the worst things that you can do is have a heel strike. That's what ends up wrecking your knees. And also the important things are great pair of running shorts. I run in Lululemon running shorts because of, they have a nice internal liner. So it stops your legs from uh, chaffing. Important things like that, if you're going to do long distance, uh, it's also important to um, <laughs> well, um, protect your nipples. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird one. Tape your nipples, right? Totally. You can get these little pads and stuff for them, but I just use duct tape. And... Um, <laughs> And because I didn't, I, and I learned this the hard way, but I remember like finishing a 50 miler and it looked like a two bullet shots, so basically just like blood oh. running down, you know? So try to avoid, try to avoid that. Cause it's uh, it's pretty painful. Um, the, uh, the, the other thing to do is think about what you enjoy. What I would do is I'd set a, a music playlist and put it on random and would give me this pick me up every so often so all of a sudden like an ACDC song comes on and go okay I have to run you know although some people love the silence and others love a good podcast discover what you really enjoy on that important pieces on this really are is sleep you know getting really good sleep it makes a massive difference and also discover what your treat is mine are gummy bears um, so <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so no it's wonderful I would buy a big giant bag, you know, of gummy bears, and I literally would take little, little, you know, Ziploc bags, be tiny ones, and I would separate them all. This is part of the joy of I have is that I put ten 
per bag, depending on the length of the race, I would pull one of these out and just treat myself and just eat one or, you know, 10 in the way. That was my treat. Uh, but it's good to find out something that you'll enjoy. Uh, yeah. Then si- sign up for one as well. And then you've got the goal. But I would recommend the goal is just to finish, you know, ignore time as it's reasonably irrelevant, especially in your first one. Although the one thing to be aware of is that your friends will ask and compare you to marathon times, but you really need to know that's not at all the same sport. It's completely fine to be twice the time of a normal marathon because the the conditions make all the difference. I think... That's some really solid life advice, actually, that you just given us. Be rested, get sleep, find the stuff that makes you feel good, treat yourself, have goals, and don't compare yourself to others. Have you considered writing a self-help book? Because I feel like you're well on your way. <laughs> <laughs> I've, just, I've, just, I've just needed a lot of therapy in life, and I think that's true. This is, this is, this is one part of it. <laughs> Mark. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Thank you for sharing your enthusiasm for ultra marathons and your life advice. Though I feel like we forgot the, the fifth piece of life advice after, you know, don't compare yourself to others and so on. You know, number five, protect your nibbles. <laughs> fantastic. Thank, thank you for having me. It's been a joy. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it onto your social medias and spread the love of enthusiasm. If you know somebody who you think needs a little pick-me-up in life, maybe they need a little bit of joyful enthusiasm in their little ear holes, send them our way. We will take good care of them, I promise. (laughs) We will pour enthusiasm in their ear holes. (laughs) Ear holes. Why why do I say these things? I don't know. I like it. And now for our moment of meta. This is something that I've thought a lot about in the last couple years, particularly because I am a teacher and also because I like to be enthusiastic about everything, regardless of my skill level. So we're going to be ruminating today on the fateful words of Mr. Jake the Dog from the cartoon Adventure Time. Dude, sucking at something is the first step towards being sort of good at something. Alex, these fateful words of a yellow dog, how do they hit your ear? Tell me. I think that makes perfect sense. It's also something that I work on a lot. I'm bad at being bad at things. Um, Mm. I love picking something up and then just being awesome at it from day one. That feels amazing. Uh, But but that's a real life skill to be able to say, "I'm, I'm doing this now and I'd rather do it badly than not do it at all. If I don't do it badly first, then I'll never do it and I'll never get better at it. That kind of makes sense, right? Yep, totally. I've done some reading of some various articles and I've also been chatting to my friends as well. Mm -hmm. And I've come up with a list of a couple of things that you can do to help you be okay with being bad at something. Mm -hmm. But ideally, be really good at being bad at something. (laughs) That's the goal. Yeah. So, so, So if you are, you can start by being bad at being bad. And then if you keep being bad, you can get better at being bad. I'm confused myself here. (laughs) Wait, wait. So you can start by being bad at being bad. Yeah. And then you can be good at being bad. And then you can just be good at being good. Yes, yes. That's what I was trying to say. Thank you. That's the treadmill we're going for. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) So the number one thing, the most important thing about being 
bad at stuff is you need to recognize your improvement. Mm -hmm. If you focus on the process of learning, you generally actually feel way more excited about it and way more engaged. So how bad were you at the beginning? When you first started, how terrible were you really? And having that that feeling from going from completely out of your depth when you first started at it to maybe going back and trying something again and feeling that satisfaction when something clicks into place. Yes. Can you think of an example where you've had that realization where like, wow, I was so shit at this six months ago. (laughs) Yes, I absolutely can. Uh, I don't think I've ever talked about it on this podcast, but I do something called CrossFit. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) This is entirely my own fault. I should have known this was coming. (laughs) Yeah, you you, you stepped right into that one, Katie. Yeah, that was my fault. This is on you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I've, I've been doing it for uh, over 10 years now. I may have mentioned that once or yeah. twice before. But anyway, something I did basically from the beginning was that I logged a lot of my results, a lot of my scores. That's mm. one of the cool things about CrossFit is that every workout gives you a score. Um, and, and seeing that improvement is super motivational for me. It reminds me that, yes, I'm still struggling with these workouts, but I'm struggling at a higher level. Um, yeah, so, so <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah, one of the things I do encourage my students to do is to film themselves dancing yeah. and then hold on to that footage because it's so funny to go back and watch it again. <laughs> funny slash mortifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like um, on my YouTube channel, I went back and I found some old dancers and reacted to them. And I totally had that mortification, but also I could see the progress I had made. And yeah. I was like, oh, wow, I was so bad. I was so terrible at dancing. Mm -hmm. But look at me now. I'm so much less terrible. This is fantastic. Yes. That feeling of seeing your own improvement, no matter how small that improvement is, seeing any form of improvement is really exciting and really motivating, as you pointed out. And it's a place that we can source our enthusiasm from. Yes, absolutely. The other top tip I have is something that I am definitely still working on and something that I think is a a universal problem for people maybe like us who are a little bit of overachievers, mm-hmm. uh, which is letting go of perfectionism. Yes. Right? It's okay to be bad at stuff. It's totally reasonable to be bad at stuff, particularly when you first start out. Most of us, when we first start doing stuff, we're children. Like when you first started to learn how to talk, it was just blah, blah, blah. Like you didn't know how to move your mouth in the correct way. Mm-hmm. When you're a child, you're totally cool with being terrible at it. As an adult, when you start trying to learn a second or third language, all of a sudden, that's unacceptable. It's like, if I cannot say this thing perfectly, I will not say it at all. Yeah. Right? We have this idea, as we get older, we're not allowed to be bad at stuff. We have to be perfect. And we're not willing to just do it anyways. Part of that is is the fear of social rejection, right? Will people still Mm. like me? Will they still respect me? If I am, you know, exposed that I'm not perfect at whatever, it's a terrible trap to fall into. One way for me to turn that around is to, instead of trying to be the best, I'll just try to have fun with it. Focusing on when is this actually fun for me rather than when am I good or when am I the best, I think transforms uh, my approach to things like swing dancing, right? I'm never going to be the best on the dance floor, but I can definitely be out there having a lot of fun and making sure that my dance partners have fun. And I actually think that's way more important. I'm inclined to agree with you (laughs) entirely. (laughs) Right? If I focus on being better, it's not going to make it more fun. But if I focus on having more fun, that actually might make me better. 
Let's be goofy and silly and not be afraid to mess up. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Totally agree with that. I think having fun and and finding joy, regardless of your quality level, I think that's where a lot of people struggle, right? They find it hard to find joy Mm -hmm. when they're just bad at something. You should learn to laugh at yourself. Learn to let go of this idea that you need to be good at stuff. You don't. Like drawing, like a lot of people are like, oh, I can't draw doesn't matter do it anyways it's fun like it's human expression of art and culture and music and like singing off key those are all fabulous things those are all glorious things like you don't have to be good at them to participate in them no exactly there are people who advocate for perfection right i've heard Mm -hmm. people say that the good is the enemy of the perfect Mm. i actually think it's the other way around Mm. the perfect is the enemy of the good Um, and if you're trying to be perfect you'll never have fun because uh, you'll never no. be perfect and you might never even get good because you get blocked along the way in, in your attempt to exactly. be perfect rather than just do shit, do whatever. <laughs> just do it because it brings you joy. Yes. You don't need to do it because you're good at it. Like No. And then the final top tip. I think in this modern day world of finding your side hustle and having another source of income and maximizing (laughs) your productivity is like people feel the need to commodify their hobbies. Mm -hmm. Like it's not good enough for you to just like draw a picture. You also have to make illustrations and then sell them on Etsy. Mm -hmm. You can't just make a couple of pair of earrings for your friends. You have to like learn how to mass produce it and then sell it on Etsy. Like if you learn how to do CrossFit, you can't just do CrossFit. You have to like commodify it and sell workout videos. Like, there's always some way which you could commodify your hobbies. Mm-hmm. And it seems like everyone is and everyone starts up a business Instagram for their cookie making business. And it's really easy to feel that pressure. But like, you don't have to do that. I don't know if you knew that. You, don't, you just don't have to. It's cool. What? There's no rule saying <laughs> yeah. that you must commodify everything you have fun with and are good at. Nah, that's just the capitalism seeping into our souls. Like, you don't have to. Yeah, it's a real risk. Suddenly, you're no longer doing it because you want to. You're doing it for whatever reward you're getting. And you stop being enthusiastic about it. And that sucks. It sucks. Yeah. 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 As a culture, we're always trying to push people to get your side hustle. You know, you need to earn this much money. Having a break, having rest, having creative time or having art time that's just for your own personal joy is not seen as productive and one must always be productive yes right exactly and like and like i think one thing i quite like about this podcast is like one we're very much learning how to do it Uh it's so joyful i have so much fun i always look (laughs) forward to recording these with you i always leave with a massive smile on my face and thus far we have not really commodified it. No, it's really no, just like no. us sticking about once a week and it's quite fun. Yeah. Um and I'm totally happy with us maybe in the future one day if we get offers ah uh, that's cool. We're not professional podcasters. We're still learning. Mm-hmm. We're not we're we're for, at the first steps of being sort of good at something one day. And it's nice that at this stage we're still like ah uh, let's just do this see if it works. Let's just try it. I don't know. It's cool. <laughs> and I really value that. I value that process and I value that. And what's quite nice about the podcast is we have the first episodes so we can go back and listen to them and be like, yo, what were we doing? Why would we do that? <laughs> it's documented. Yes. And then we can enjoy the progress. Yeah, yeah. exactly. 
How meta was that, huh? That was met meta on meta. I got you your moment of meta. You asked me for a moment of meta. I got. I put meta in your meta. You delivered. <laughs> <laughs> we are getting a lot of great reactions uh, from our previous episodes, both comments and corrections. And here's where I goofed. I made a mistake. Because in our episode on Dune, I talked about some of the failed attempts to make a Dune movie. The most legendary one is, of course, the, the Jodorowsky Dune film, which has a cult following, even though it never happened. And I accidentally said in the podcast that I was glad it didn't get made because Jodorowsky apparently had never read the book. And that turned out to be wrong. We got a comment from uh, Mark Chu, who commented on our YouTube video with that episode. And Katie, could you please read the comment? Because it's awesome. Just a minor correction, since this is a pretty common misconception. Yodorovsky did read Dune. He just did it after deciding to take on the project. Somehow a lot of people miss this, but the documentary states that he allocated time early on for reading the book in order to develop the script. He even went as far as renting a castle to read it in just for that extra je ne sais quoi. <laughs> Mark, I hope I did your voice right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did. Isn't that amazing? Renting a castle, je ne sais quoi. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just want to read it somewhere near those dunes. I feel like that's the that's the energy I want to have in my life. So, Mark, thank you so much for correcting that. I'm glad we cleared that up. Alex, you told me you've come up with the perfect person to play Modesty Blaze. I'm very excited. Who is it? Yes. So we need somebody who's glamorous, right? She's this mm -hmm. glamorous 60s action heroine comic book figure. We need somebody who has the right duration, combination looks and, and heritage. We need somebody with a, a great British accent. I have the perfect person. You know her because she's from this podcast's favorite show. She's an avatar? No, the other favorite show. <laughs> <laughs> What's our other favorite show? <laughs> the Good Place. Oh, oh, Tahani, Tahani. Yeah, Tahani. Not Tahani, Jamila Jamil. Jamila Al Jamil would be the perfect Modesty Blaze. She has that combination of wry humor and glamorous looks. She has the right heritage. She has the right feminist values. For somebody to play this feminist action hero, she would be perfect. What do you think? That'd be great. I also love Jamila. Anyone listening to this podcast, highly recommend. Follow her on Instagram. There's not much she does that I don't love. I really, really, really like her. And she just got pulled into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. She's done a bunch of like fight training and martial arts stuff. Yeah. Which would also make her very well suited to play Modesty Blaze. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Podcast listeners, I'm stroking my beard as if I had one. <laughs> We'd have to deal with Modesty Blaze having a fringe, though, because Jamila does not do stuff without her bangs. Uh, I am willing to make that sacrifice. I think I could adjust <laughs> to that character choice. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Excellent. So, dear listener, what do you think about ultra marathons? Did we leave you itching to strap on your running shoes and run a quick 50K or 50 miles? Who knows? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Running. Sorry. So much running. <laughs> or would you, like Katie and me, prefer to admire the efforts from afar? Do you have any questions about ultra running or did we leave out something super important about the topic? Go to our website or Instagram at Electric Enthusiasm and leave us a comment. 
And now, dear listeners, don't forget to protect your nipples. <laughs> it had to be that one. It had to be. There was no other option. <laughs> we had a choice. No, no, no. I see that. Yeah. <laughs>